Hello and welcome back to A Trip Down Ducket's Passage, the podcast where we talk all things goodnight sweetheart, where Gary Sparrow travels from his everyday life in 1993 back to the 1940s to discover what life was like during the war. During this podcast, we look at all the fun facts and trivia that you may not be aware of, and there may be even some bits that you might learn for the first time. Or you may be here just for the absolute nostalgia fest to relive each episode of this amazing time-travelling sitcom. As usual, we will have all of your favourite segments during today's podcast. We will obviously have the mailbag where we will go through all the correspondence that you guys have been sending me. We will also have the episode review where we will go through the episode scene by scene discussing each part we will have history which is connected to this episode we will look at the actors that take part in this episode and we will also delve into the audio commentary from Lawrence Marks and Morris Grant as they talk about how each episode was put together I will also have another time portal story for you today we started that segment in the last episode of this podcast and i enjoyed doing it so much that i found another true story well it's claimed to be true of how a time portal or a time slip has occurred in everyday life so we'll go through that as the episode goes on so sit back and relax as we take that trip down ducat's passage I think now would be the right time to tell you which episode we'll be reviewing on today's podcast and we will be doing series one episode four of goodnight sweetheart and the title of the episode is called the more i see you here's a little overview Yvonne is heading away for the weekend, which Gary sees as a great opportunity to spend more time with Phoebe. Things don't go to plan for Gary and Phoebe though, as Gary can't help with Phoebe's desperate pleas. This comes after Gary has also upset his best friend Ron, despite Ron helping Gary out with a kind gesture. So before we go into the episode review, I like to normally delve into the mailbag to hear what you guys have got to say to me, what questions you've been asking and getting some feedback on the podcast as a whole. We start off today with Spotify. As you know, I sometimes attach a question to the Spotify podcast for you guys to get interactive with and answer. One of the questions I put was, if you could claim to have written any song back in the 1940s, what song would it be? Anita Gaskell replied by saying, don't sit under under the apple tree. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. No, no, no. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me till I come marching home. And Anita was also kind enough to answer one of our other questions as well, attached to one of the other podcasts. I put Gary ran to the 1940s to get out of seeing his newborn niece slash nephew at the hospital. But what would you run back to the 1940s to avoid? And Anita has put something which I think we can all relate to, and she's put work. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be saying that. Over to the correspondence now on Facebook. Now, I was contacted by a listener called Melanie Richardson, and she starts off her comment by saying, when is the next episode? She absolutely loves it. Lovely, comfortable listening. Now, first and foremost, let me just apologise because I have had a few people asking about when the podcasts are coming out. And believe me, I love doing this podcast, but I'm doing it in my spare time. And at the moment, I think I'm averaging one every two weeks. But because it's Christmas time as well, I'm literally having to do it whenever I get an opportunity. But I would love to get as many out to you as possible. And I'm so glad that all of you are eager to listen to this podcast because, like I say, I never in a million years expected that to be the case when I first started out. So thank you so much. Melanie's also put in her comment that she's just watched the episode when Gary goes too far back and ends up in Victorian London with Jack the Ripper. Now this is an episode that is coming in many many series so she's given out a few spoilers there but I know exactly which episode she is on about. And speaking about episodes which are in the future I've actually been watching on one of the channels that it's been shown on TV some of the Good Night Sweetheart episodes I think it was from series six, I think it was, with my daughters. And they've actually been as hooked as I am. And it's good to see that this next generation can sit down in front of the TV and enjoy Goodnight Sweetheart as much as everybody else that watched it back in the 1990s. So that is lovely to see. 
I have also had on Facebook comments from Ian Tipper, who says, I only came across the podcast yesterday. I've binged them all in one go. Love the show, and I really like your style. Keep them coming. Thank you very much, Ian. Over to Instagram, we had Maxine58 say, This is one of my favourite programmes, and I'm loving the podcast. Really well done. Looking forward to hearing more. And we finish off our mailbag section with some rather exciting correspondence from Twitter or X. Now, as you may remember, our last episode of A Trip Down Duckett's Passage featured the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Goodnight Sweetheart. And I even released that podcast on the actual anniversary date. As you may know by now, I always promote the podcast episodes on all of the social media accounts. And I did that on Twitter, tagging Marks and Gran in on it as well. And also wishing Goodnight Sweetheart a massive happy birthday as well. And to my delight, Marks and Gran responded by commenting on the post. And they put, we will always be grateful and amazed for the loyalty and affection of Goodnight Sweetheart fans. Thanks. And not only that, Marks and Gran started following the A Trip Down Duckett's Passage Twitter account. So I thought I would be a little bit cheeky and I sent them a private message asking if they would be up for an interview at some point in 2024 talking about all things Goodnight Sweetheart. Now, I didn't expect a response, but they actually got back in touch with me by saying that they are going to listen to the podcast, see what they think, and then they will get back in touch. So, guys, let's keep our fingers crossed and watch this space, and let's hope that at some point in the new year, we have the writers of Goodnight Sweetheart on this show. I'm not raising my hopes too high. I mean, just the fact that I got a message back and a follow on Twitter has filled me with absolute glee, but we shall see. I'll get back in in contact with them again at some point and see what they think of the podcast but yep that's rather exciting and that's all today for our mailbag let's get cracking on the main part of the podcast where we review the episode scene by scene and as i mentioned earlier we're looking at series one episode four the more i see you an episode that first aired on the 9th of December 1993 on the BBC and still raked in 9 million viewers. So let's begin the episode and today we start off in Gary's living room and he's been to Wally's world of wallpaper and we find Gary looking over wallpaper samples as Yvonne walks in in quite a jovial mood and we find out that Gary's looking to decorate their bedroom. They both then start discussing the physical side of their marriage and how they could possibly do with brightening that up rather than the rooms in their house. This then allows Yvonne the opportunity to have yet another dig at Gary's love for the Blitz. But there's far too much emphasis placed on the physical side of marriage these days. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. It wasn't like that in the war, was it? Well, since you raised the subject, no. People had more important things to worry about then. I mean, if the Earth moved in 1940, it was usually a landmine. Not the blitz again. Look, if you don't want me to decorate our bedroom while you're away, just say the word. Gary, I was just saying... Because I won't have anything better to do, will I? Because I'll be on my own, won't I? From Friday to Monday, while you're off living it up at the University College Uddersfield. So we hear at the end of that clip that Yvonne is off for a weekend in Huddersfield. Yvonne claims that the residential that she is attending is vital for her university course. But Gary insinuates that the reason she's going is to act like any other university student and even goes as far to say that she'll misbehave with her tutor. Yvonne seems put back at this comment saying that actually she has worked really hard on her course and manages to get the last dig in at Gary by saying that it will be when she has finished her course that she will sleep with her tutor as he is gorgeous and Yvonne leaves the living room leaving Gary unsure how to react to that comment. We then head to the next scene and we are in a new location to the show which will pop up quite a few times from this moment on and we are at Ron's workplace which is a printing works. We find Ron standing in the warehouse and strangely Gary is just stood in the warehouse too talking to Ron now I mean it's not every day that you'll just see some random person who doesn't work there just standing in your warehouse talking to one of the employees but no that's what Gary's doing he's just chatting away with Ron however Gary is there for a reason and he needs a massive favor from Ron I think I understand but let's just recapitulate you want me to print you a 100% authentic set of personal identification papers as carried by plucky British citizens during the Second World War. Using the paper and ink prevalent at the time, yeah. Oh, take it for granted. 
We heard there that Gary is requesting some authentic-looking wartime documents to be printed by Ron, claiming that they are to be used as some props for his cousin's wartime theatre show. Looking back at the last episode of Goodnight Sweetheart, you will remember that Gary was in deep trouble for not having the right documentation back in the 1940s. So having a best mate who is a printer surely makes sense that Ron can help him out. But obviously Gary cannot let on that they are so that he can take them back to the 1940s for real. Ron isn't silly though and he claims that he knows the real purpose for these documents. Now I know what's really going on. You were telling the truth when you rang that phone in the other week, weren't you? You really have stumbled through a hole in the space-time continuum and found yourself in war-torn London. That's why you need documents. And that's why you've suddenly become so fixated with the period. At this point, Ron tells Gary to head into his office so that they can chat in peace. And once in there, Gary just has to spill all. He tells Ron about the time portal and also goes as far to say that he has met another woman back in the 1940s that he can't get out of his head. Gary also mentions about nearly being thrown into prison the last time he went, hence why he needs these realistic documents. Ron looks excited about all of this information that he's hearing, but then stops himself from getting too ahead of himself by asking if this is all just some ploy to get him to a surprise birthday party for himself. Again, this just highlights Ron's need to feel wanted and be liked, as he just hopes that somebody is actually willing to go to extreme lengths for him. But as we know, this is not the case, and that actually, Gary is telling the truth, and lets Ron know that. Ron... I can go back. To 1940? Yes. Bombs the lot. Wow. Ron then starts asking about what Phoebe's like, and he's actually quite disrespectful with some of his choice of words. But Gary puts him straight and describes Phoebe as a lovely woman, and also mentions that she's actually married, but her husband is fighting for his country in Africa. Ron then starts commenting on the fact that it actually wouldn't be classed as adultery, seeing as Gary hadn't even been born at that point. And then Ron again shows his true colours by making things quite morbid, by mentioning to Gary that Phoebe's actually probably more than likely dead in the present day. Gary warns Ron to stop, so Ron then turns the attention to the other lady in Gary's life, Yvonne. Ron asks if Yvonne has suspected anything, seeing as Gary has all of a sudden become obsessed with the 1940s, to which Gary tells him that she did question the new obsession. However, he just played up to the fact that he was jealous that she was going up to Huddersfield to do this university course, when in fact it works in his favour, so that he gets to spend more time back with Phoebe in the past without being questioned. Gary then asks Ron the question one final time. So can you print these documents for me or what? Oh yeah, I can print them. On one condition. And we don't find out what that condition is quite yet as we move on to the next scene. Now that's a great little two-hander scene there between Gary and Ron. A lot of information given out between the two of them and it brings Ron fully up to date with all that has happened so far. We're now back at Sparrow House and Gary is taking a nap on the sofa in what looks to be the most uncomfortable way possible to have a nap on a sofa, especially as their sofas look like benches that have cushions on them. Gary is rudely awakened though as Yvonne storms into the living room with a suitcase opening it out on top of Gary with all the contents falling out onto him. Yvonne asks what is all this stuff in the suitcase, to which Gary responds that the suitcase was locked up in the attic. The items that we see that have come out of the suitcase are Gary's 1940s items. It looks like his outfits and food from that time and also some ladies stockings and perfume. Yvonne accuses Gary of being some weirdo that dresses up and acts like it's still 1940s London handing out old fashioned gifts to women. Gary tells Yvonne that there is a completely rational explanation for all of this and when Yvonne asks for it, Gary at first doesn't actually know what to say. And when he does come out with something, it doesn't actually help him, as he makes out he has been planning a surprise 1940s birthday party for Yvonne all of this time, only for Yvonne to mention that her birthday is months away. Gary then loses it and comes clean to Yvonne. All right, I have. I have got to admit it. I can't live this lie any longer. I wear these when I go back to 1940 to see my girlfriend. And I take her chocolate and cigarettes and stockings because she can't get them in the war. It's as simple as that. Psychiatric help is almost impossible <laughs> to get on the National Health Service. But in your case, I'm sure they'll make an exception. All right, then. Well, why do you think I've got all this stuff, eh? I don't know, Gary. And I doubt if you do either. Yvonne gets up to leave the room, and Gary looks exasperated. 
Remember that we are now on the fourth episode, and already Gary has confessed at least twice to Yvonne about what he has been up to, and yet Yvonne still hasn't cottoned on. On to the next scene, and it's the return of that lovely jaunty music, as we see a car pull up alongside Duckett's Passage, with Gary getting out of the passenger side in his 1940s outfit. This is where we find out what Ron's bargaining tool was, so in exchange for printing the documents for Gary, we see Ron get out of the driver's side of the car, and he jumps out and is looking incredibly dapper in his very own 1940s outfit. Ron has clearly begged Gary to take him back to 1940s London, and Gary can't exactly say no, seeing as Ron has done him such a favour by printing the important documents. Gary gives Ron some rules to follow before they head down Duckett's Passage, warning Ron that if anybody was to talk to him, then all he is allowed to do is smile and nod his head. Ron agrees to this, and as they head towards the alleyway, they come across a couple of kids who are sat on the corner of Duckett's Passage with a Guy Fawkes doll. The little lad stops Gary and asks for a penny for the guy, and Gary hands over a coin. The boy looks down at the coin, turning it over in his hands, and claims that this isn't a real coin, and Gary replies by saying, it is where he's going, and Gary and Ron walk on past. Now the next minute or so, I have mixed feelings about the scene that plays out, so what we see is Gary storming off down Duckett's Passage, with Ron following a few steps behind, and Ron notices that his shoelace is undone, so bends down to tie it up. We then see Gary come out of the other end of Duckett's Passage in 1940, and he's talking to Ron, before realising that Ron isn't there. Gary has a little look around for Ron, and just carries on in the direction of the Royal Oak Pub. We then switch back to Ron, who has made it back out of the other side of Duckett's Passage, but still in 1993. Ron looks around for Gary, but no such luck. Ron notices somebody working underneath their car, so calls out to the person underneath, asking whether they'd seen a tall, fair-haired guy dressed in similar clothing come out from the passageway a few moments ago. The man working on his car says no, and Ron looks up to see members of the public laughing at him for his choice of clothing, and we hear Ron cursing Gary, and I think rightfully so. Like I said, this bit leaves me feeling a bit conflicted. I love the back-to-back scenes of Gary and Ron coming out of Duckett's Passage in two different time periods, and I love how similar the scenes are, yet the differences that are on show from the two time periods. So when Gary comes out in 1940, we see how actually well presented the shop fronts look, even with this war going on. A shopkeeper comes out and gets on his bicycle with a basket on the front to do some deliveries, and we see the market stalls lined up along the street. While when Rong appears in 1993, there's loud shop alarms ringing, litter all over the floor, a newsagent that looks a bit grubby, cars parked up on the curbs, and half-ripped posters on the walls. You would have thought it was 1993 that was suffering from the war. But yeah, I really like this part and how it was kind of presented to the viewers. But what annoys me about this bit though is Gary. And Gary cares so little for Ron, I feel, at this point, that he only spends, what, a matter of seconds looking for Ron? And this is his mate who has just helped him by making some documents for him. And yet Gary doesn't even think to go back down Duckett's Passage to see if Ron is okay. Gary just simply heads to the pub and forgets all about Ron. So self-centred, but great little scene. I really did enjoy the, the two scenes there back to back. Gary enters the pub and sees Eric cleaning the tables, and smugly flaunts his documents and ration books into Eric's face. Gary has a little joke with Eric as Eric goes to get Gary a drink, something that Eric isn't impressed with, and Eric mentions he's fed up with Gary coming in here making outrageous promises to Phoebe about what life will be like after the war ends and turning her head by bringing her gifts. Eric soon stops his attack on Gary when he realises that Gary has brought him some cigarettes. Gary asks if Phoebe is about and Eric tells her that she's left home and gone to find a job. It doesn't take much for Eric to start blaming Gary again for Phoebe leaving. However, Eric is easily swayed when Gary asks for information on Phoebe's whereabouts. So where's she living then? She's gone to stay with the wife's sister, and if you think I'm going to give you the address, you've got another thing coming. Bar of chocolate? She's at 37 Livingston Crescent. <laughs> we then see Phoebe enter the pub, and she's looking a bit shaken. She mentions that her aunt, who she was staying with, has been bombed out, leaving her aunt in hospital with a broken leg. Phoebe is clearly in shock that she's just had this lucky escape, as she was actually out at the time, so Eric begs her to come back home. 
Gary and Eric have yet another argument, blaming each other for Phoebe wanting to move out in the first place. And this is the last straw for Phoebe, who's had enough and storms out of the pub, claiming she needs some fresh air. Gary follows after her. We're now in a cemetery and we see Gary and Phoebe walking together and Phoebe is going into more depth about what has happened to her aunt's house and how the neighbours weren't so lucky and ended up dying from the blast. Phoebe talks about the uncertainty that people faced each day during the war, never knowing if they would come back to their family or to find a hole in the ground. Phoebe then questions Gary on his outlook on the war. And don't you hate it? Yeah, of course I do. Do you? Because I don't seem to affect you like it does other people. I mean, you come and go, you're always happy. Shortages and rationings don't seem to bother you. Well, it's not that. It's just that well, deep down I know we're going to win. I don't. <laughs> Take me back with you, Gary. What? Take me back with you, please. Phoebe, I can't. It's not possible. How did you... Why not? Well, you must have family in Crickerwood or mates at least. There's, there's got to be someone you know with a spare room. Crickerwood. I thought you meant America. We hear there that Gary's first thought is that Phoebe wanted to be taken back with him to the 1990s, which he refers to as America, before coming to his senses and realises that Phoebe wants to come back to Cricklewood with him. Phoebe reckons that the reason Gary won't take her away is because he doesn't want people to think that he's taken advantage of Phoebe as she is a married woman. Gary and Phoebe sit down on a bench and Phoebe mentions that she had a letter from Donald the other day but it had nothing in it, no feelings, no hopes for the future for the pair of them, just pure small talk about the weather of North Africa. Gary tries to fight Donald's corner by saying that some people just aren't good at writing letters but Phoebe isn't silly and responds by saying she knows it's more to do with the fact that Donald doesn't really care for her. Phoebe comes out with something that Gary has told her before and it is something that Phoebe is clearly clinging on to in hope. And then I remembered what you once said about after the war. Our people will be different. How they won't be forced to, to stay in loveless marriages. Did I say that? You did. Did you mean it? It's starting to rain, come on. The scene then comes to an end as it starts raining and the couple head off to find some shelter. Now back in 1993 we see a car racing around the streets of a residential area and it's Ron and he skids to a halt outside of Gary's house. Ron is furious and rightly so and he storms up to the front door and bangs repeatedly on the door and also looking through the kitchen window for signs of life. But it's clear that nobody's home and so Ron takes to leaving Gary an angry voicemail message. Ah, trying to be on the answering machine, eh? Right. If you're in there, pal, you better get to the phone and explain to me what you think you're doing making a mug of me. Well? Okay. I don't know if there's some sort of elaborate practical joke or if you're an 18-carat nutcase, but maybe I should just drive up to Huddersfield and ask the fragrant Yvonne what she makes of your behaviour, and you owe me 75 quid for the ration book. <laughs> Back in the 1940s, and Gary and Phoebe have found some shelter from the rain as we see them heading inside a chapel. They sit down at a pew and Gary hands over lots of gifts from the 1990s, chocolates, stockings and a few other bits. And Gary asks Phoebe what's all this business about her wanting a job. Phoebe mentions that she did used to have a job before the war and that she wants to help out by packing parachutes or munitions work but Eric hit the roof when she mentioned it to him before. Gary goes on to talk about his marriage but using Marilyn Monroe as a reference instead of Yvonne and Phoebe looks a bit put out that Gary has never mentioned before that he's married. Phoebe then asks what kind of a place Gary lives in and when Gary mentions that he lives in a small house with two bedrooms, Joy sweeps over Phoebe's face as she realises she could move in with Gary as his lodger. Knowing that he has to put her off the idea somehow, Gary points out that Eric wouldn't approve of it and people would talk. These reasons don't seem to work on Phoebe though, so Gary has to go all out by saying that he hasn't been completely honest 
and that Marilyn Monroe had followed him to England from America. Things then hit an all-time low for Gary and Phoebe. Maybe I should have added that she followed me to England. What? I'm sorry, I should have told you. You mean she's living with you? So all the time you're stringing me along, you're still married to this Marilyn Monroe? Oh, I don't believe I'm hearing this. I suppose you've got kids and all. No, of course not. Then why should I believe you, you two-timing creep? No, look, Phoebe, look, I don't love her. She's a nightmare to live with. She has terrible, violent mood swings, but I can't just throw her out. I don't want to know. Look, no, 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 Phoebe, Phoebe. Look, if you want a flat, I've got some money. We could work something out. I don't want to be your kept fancy woman. Thank you very much. Look, Gary receives a slap around the face from Phoebe and she storms out of the chapel. Back to 1993 and Gary returns home and walks into his living room in a strop, throwing his hat and satchel down onto the sofa. He notices that his answering machine is flashing and listens to the message left by Ron which we heard earlier. Clearly by the look on Gary's face he realises how he has upset Ron and that Ron is another person along with Phoebe and Yvonne who he has taken for granted recently. We then move straight into another scene and it's night time and we see Gary's TV repair van driving across a car park and parking up. It is the worst parking ever as he parks diagonally across three bays. I would not be happy if I saw that in a car park. Gary gets out to look at a notice board and we see it's a map of a campus and we see at the top of the board that it says University of Huddersfield. So we know that Gary has arrived to look for Yvonne and try to salvage something of his marriage. A security guard comes across with his dog to talk to Gary and we see some good old-fashioned comedy. Oh, charming. Regius Professor of Medieval Philosophy, Oxford. Am I right? Uh, nearly. Medieval history, actually. I'm also lost. I'm looking for my wife. She's on the Open University Psychology Weekend. You let your wife go on one of those? <laughs> Not an open marriage, have you? No. That's what you think. <laughs> anyway, they're having the Saturday night social and pre-orgy barbecue over in the Harold Wilson bar. Thanks. Oh, fireworks. No, I knew that. I was just, uh... So we saw Gary talking to the security guard there and all of a sudden a firework goes off and we see Gary dive to the floor shouting get down as he thinks it's a bomb only for the security guard to look bemused at Gary on the floor. A great visual comedic gag which certainly had me chuckling there. Looking embarrassed Gary quickly shuttles off into the uni to look for Yvonne. Gary finds this social event and we see Yvonne in the arms of another man, dancing up close and personal to a slow number. Gary spots them on the dance floor and marches over to them to interrupt the dance. Yvonne is clearly shocked to see that Gary is here and runs after him. Yvonne asks Gary why he has driven 200 miles to come and see her, and Gary's first response is to ask whether Ron has been up to see her. Yvonne says that he hasn't, and asks why he would. I think Gary instantly seems relieved about this and you can tell that his approach to this whole situation instantly changes. Although Gary questions why Yvonne was dancing so close with Mr Elbow Patches, as he refers to him, it's as if he's putting on this show of jealousy, knowing full well that his trustworthy friend Ron hasn't exposed him. Gary and Yvonne sit down for a chat and they both decide that they need a coffee back in Yvonne's room. However, as Gary gets up to follow Yvonne, he has a moment which seems to have stuck with him. So as Gary and Yvonne share a joke as they get up from their chairs, Gary thinks back to Phoebe and how desperate she was for Gary to take her with him and we hear Phoebe saying those words. Gary shakes this off and suggests to Yvonne that they have a quick dance before they leave and the song that comes on is the song that is the title of this episode, The More I See You. And Gary says to Yvonne that the correct way to dance to this song is by dancing the foxtrot. And Gary then takes her by the hand and Gary shows off his dancing skills that he's learnt from the 1940s. And they dance off around the dance floor as the episode comes to a close. There we have it, that's the end of the episode. An enjoyable episode, I feel like we see Gary struggling to handle the pressures of keeping happy the three important people to him. 
think Gary's starting to come across as very self-centred and as the episode comes to an end I think Gary realises that he could have handled things better with each of them. We have the last scene where Gary patches things up with Yvonne. At this point we see this look on Gary's face when Yvonne mentions that Ron hasn't been to see her so I think Gary realises then how good a friend Ron actually is by not dobbing Gary in. And as for Phoebe, well things haven't been left in a great place. Their last interaction was Phoebe slapping Gary and now Gary is being haunted by the fact that despite all of the ways he can use his gifts and knowledge from the future to keep Phoebe safe and alive during the war, he can't actually help her with the one thing she wants, which is to feel loved and be looked after in the way she deserves. But yeah, I enjoyed the episode. It had some good bits in it. Like I said, I enjoyed the bit where you had Ron and Gary both heading down Duckett's Passage and ended up coming out the other end in two different time periods. So yeah, another really good episode. I think so far this whole series, now we're four episodes in, has been a really good series, especially for a sitcom's first series. And we've got two episodes to go in this series and I'm sure they're just going to be as strong as the first four that we've had so far. On to the history segment and to be fair during that whole episode there wasn't a great deal of history that we could have picked apart to be fair however I have chosen one thing to look at today or should I say one person to look at today and that is Marilyn Monroe. The reason I've chosen Marilyn Monroe is because I think she's been mentioned a couple of times in previous episodes as the kind of the love interest of Gary so I thought we'd have a little bit of history on who Marilyn Monroe was and what her life was was like. Marilyn Monroe was born as Norma Jean Mortensen on the 1st of June 1926 in Los Angeles in California. She was later given her mother's name and baptised Norma Jean Baker. After a tumultuous childhood which saw both maternal grandparents and her mother committed to mental institutions, she lived with a string of foster families. Norma Jean married one of her neighbours, James Doherty, when she was 16 and he later joined the Merchant Marines and was sent to the South Pacific during World War II. A photographer discovered the naturally photogenic Norma Jean when she was working in a California munitions factory and she was soon launched into a successful modelling career. She divorced Doherty in June 1946 and soon after signed a film contract with 20th Century Fox. At the outset of her acting career, Norma Jean dyed her brown hair blonde and changed her name again, calling herself Marilyn Monroe. Monroe was her grandmother's last name. After a bit part in 1947's The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, she had a string of forgettable roles before landing a spot in the asphalt jungle in 1950. That same year, she also drew attention for her work in All About Eve, starring Betty Davis, her true breakout performance, though, came in Niagara in 1953, a thriller in which Monroe played an adulterous young wife who plots with her lover to kill her husband. After starring turns in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire, both released in 1953, Monroe was at the top of Hollywood's A-list, and in January 1954, she married baseball great Joe DiMaggio at San Francisco's City Hall after a two-year romance. Though the press held their relationship as the quintessential all-American love affair, trouble began brewing almost immediately, and DiMaggio was notoriously uncomfortable with his new wife's sexy public image and her wild popularity. They would go on to divorce that October after only nine months of marriage, but remain good friends. It is said that after Monroe's death, DiMaggio famously sent roses to her grave several times a week for more than three decades until his own death in 1999. Monroe attempted to switch to more serious acting roles, studying at the prestigious Actors Studio in New York. She earned positive reviews for her more nuanced work in Bus Stop, the Prince and the Showgirl, and particularly Some Like It Hot. But by 1961, however, there was trouble in Monroe's personal life. She had a third failed marriage, and this led to increasing emotional fragility, and that year she was admitted to, on two occasions to hospitals for psychiatric observation and rest. In 1962, Fox dismissed the actress after repeated and extended absences from the set of Something's Got to Give. On August the 5th, 1962, Monroe was found dead from an overdose in her home in Brentwood, California. She was only 36 years old. 
While it's never been confirmed, Marilyn Monroe had an alleged relationship with President John F. Kennedy, which was one of the most talked about affairs in history. The affair was actually even referenced in this episode of Goodnight Sweetheart. Monroe and JFK were first introduced to each other in 1954 and you may have seen Monroe's infamous performance of Happy Birthday Mr. President which ignited and continues to ignite the assumptions that the pair had had an affair. Although the relationship remained private due to JFK's marriage to First Lady Jackie Kennedy. When Kennedy tired of her, he passed her off to his brother, US Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. In the weeks leading up to her death, it was reported that she was threatening to hold a press conference to expose her relationship with President Kennedy and his brother Robert F. Kennedy and Marilyn claimed that she had become pregnant by one of the Kennedy brothers. A few days before she died, she called a close friend to tell them about her plan to marry Bobby Kennedy. Since her death, there have been countless conspiracy theories claiming the Kennedy family were involved in her death. While that has not been proved, it further fuels the mystery that was Monroe's life. Elton John released a song in 1974 called Candle in the Wind from his album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. The song's opening line, Goodbye Norma Jean, refers to Monroe's real name and the lyrics of the song are a sympathetic portrayal of the life of Marilyn Monroe. Right, on to the songs from this episode. Let's start off with the song that you may have heard in the background when Gary finds Yvonne dancing with her tutor at the social event at the university. The song that they were dancing to was All Woman by Lisa Stansfield. He says, babe, you look a mess. You look down in that dress. It's just not like it used to be. Then she says, I may not be a lady, but I'm all woman from Monday to Sunday. I work harder than you know. I'm no classy lady, but I'm all woman, and this woman needs a little love to make. Great 90s hit there. The next song that we're going to look at is, like I said earlier on, the title of this episode, The More I See You. Now, the song The More I See You was introduced by Dick Hames in the 1945 film Diamond Horseshoe and sounds like this. The more I see you The more I want you Somehow this feeling just grows and grows with every song. There have been other versions that have been recorded by the likes of Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Andy Williams and Nancy Sinatra. But the most commercially successful and well-known recording of the song was released in 1966 by Chris Montez and actually reached number three in the UK single charts. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the song that Gary and Yvonne danced to at the end of the episode. Take a listen to this. Well, 
Take a look at the actors that appeared in today's episode. To be fair, there weren't actually a great big cast in this episode. I think there was only three other actors that appeared other than the main cast. And let's start off with the security guard that we saw at the end of the episode when Gary arrives at Huddersfield University. He was played by Martin Whitby, who was born on the 10th of December 1949 in Nottingham. He was an actor that played minor roles in numerous TV shows throughout his career. But Whitby did have notable stints in Crossroads, EastEnders, Emmerdale and The Bill. There was the young lad that speaks to Gary when he's asking for a penny for the guy and he was played by Bobby Coombs. And after some research it looks as if Bobby did not really carry on his acting career as other than Goodnight Sweetheart he appeared in one episode of London's Burning and then three episodes of The Bill. The only other person that I have got some notes on regarding being in this episode was the man that is working underneath the car that Ron talks to as he looks for Gary down Duckett's Passage and, and he's played by Nerjay Mahindru. Nerjay Mahindru left acting to become a writer, a theatre producer and is actually the founder of the Conspirators Kitchen Theatre and like myself he is an Arsenal fan. During his short acting career, his most notable role was playing Staff Nurse Langdon in 11 episodes of CITV's hit children's show, Children's Ward. If you'd like to find out more information on what Nerjay is up to now, you can follow him on Twitter or X. His account is at Nerjay, or you can visit the website of his theatre company, which is www.conspiratorskitchen.com. And I'll also add those links to our socials too. On to the trivia, and to be fair, there wasn't a great deal that I could really add to this episode, really. I was hoping to see if I could find out where the cemetery was, where Gary and Phoebe took a walk around, but I couldn't seem to find that out. If anybody knows, please get in touch. And I mean, I'm scraping the barrel for trivia here. I mean, the only bit I could find was that Nicholas Lindhurst and Victor Maguire, who obviously play Gary and Ron respectively, appear in every episode of Goodnight Sweetheart. Christopher Etheridge, who plays Reg, appears in all but two episodes and this is one of those episodes and that is really all i've got for today for trivia so let's head straight on to audio commentary so audio commentary and i did find out a few nice bits today with the audio commentary after listening to marks and gran on the dvd first of all they talk about nicholas lindhurst and how he liked to live a very private life they say that when they first started filming goodnight sweetheart down on columbia road lindhurst was swamped by kids shouting rodney at him despite him being dressed as 1940s gary sparrow Marks and Gran used to ask Nicholas Lindhurst how he coped with all this attention, but Lindhurst would respond by saying it wouldn't normally be an issue as he lived in the countryside and if he did have to go anywhere public, he would often walk around in a baseball cap pulled right down and some sunglasses so he wouldn't be recognised. So much so that Marks and Gran even said that when they had dinner with him, they wouldn't even recognise him when he came in to the restaurant to meet them. Other bits that I got from the audio commentary, the original idea was that Gary and Phoebe were going to be walking around a park that was dug up into an allotment instead of the cemetery that they do end up walking around. Marks and Gran also said that people would often ask them if there was a reason that Phoebe wore that red coat while walking around the cemetery and they didn't know if it was a reference to her being a scarlet woman which is a woman who is notorious for having many casual sexual affairs or relationships but no it was just the fact that it was the first coat that the props team got their hands on and that is that for the audio commentary for today there's that strange sound which means we've just headed down a time portal so we can look at time slips that have appeared in everyday life and we head to suffolk today for a weird goings-on in October 1957 for three lads who were on an orienteering expedition. 
So, on a bright, clear autumn morning in October 1957, something deeply unsettling happened in Kersey near Hadley in Suffolk. Three 15-year-olds, William Lang from Scotland, Ray Barker from London and Michael Crowley from Worcestershire were taking part in an orienteering exercise on a Sunday morning, steadily crossing the undulating countryside. The Royal Navy cadets were looking for a waypoint before heading back to base camp to report to their superiors. And as they were close to their quarry, across the wind, they heard church bells. At the top of the hill they were climbing, they saw smoke rising from chimneys and the spire of a nearby church. Walking towards the village, they began to feel uneasy. Try as they might, they could not hear any noise other than the gentle trickle of a stream. The birdsong that had accompanied their journey had disappeared and the church bells had fallen silent. And that wasn't the only thing troubling them. Autumnal trees had been replaced with vibrant green leaves as if it was springtime. There was no hint of the breeze that they had been walking in and the smoking chimneys and church spire had vanished, replaced by timber-framed buildings. There were no streetlights. No TV aerials, no cars, and no telephone wires. And there were no sign of any people anywhere. The only living creatures the boys could see other than each other were the ducks that splashed silently in the stream. Filled with unease, the boys began to look around. There in a butcher's shop window were skinned ox carcasses, green with age and covered with cobwebs, as if the butcher had left in a hurry weeks earlier. Houses in the village were bare of furniture, just empty cold shells. And just then a shiver passed through all three youths, as all felt the icy stare of invisible watchers from all around the village tracing their every step. It was the last straw. Petrified and nauseous, they walked quickly up the village street, eventually pelting away from the strange medieval-looking houses, pausing only to glance back to check if they were being followed, and at which point they saw smoke rising from chimneys and the spire of the nearby church. Decades later in 1990, Lang, now living in Australia, flew to England to visit researcher Andrew Mackenzie to investigate what had happened and returned to Kersey. There, Mackenzie revealed to Lang that his research had uncovered that the building where the three boys had seen the rotten meat had been registered as a butcher's shop from 1719 to 1905 and could possibly have been associated with the trade for centuries. Lang recalled what he'd felt back in 1957. It was a ghost village, so to speak. It was almost as if we'd walked back in time. I experienced an overwhelming feeling of sadness and depression in Kersey, but also a feeling of unfriendliness and unseen watchers, which sent shivers at one's back. I wondered if we'd knocked at the door to ask a question, who might have answered it? It doesn't bear thinking about. Mackenzie was puzzled by the fact that the church, which dates back to the 14th century, had not been visible during the possible time slip, and put forward the suggestion that the three had stumbled into Kersey shortly after the plague had killed half its population. Others, of course, have suggested that Kersey simply looked old-fashioned to three lads, and that over the years, the otherworldliness became something altogether more sinister in each retelling of the story. <laughs> Great little time slip story there. Remember, if you guys are aware of any time slips or any local time slips to you that you may want to share with us on the podcast, then get in contact with us and I will be more than happy to share them on one of our future podcasts. So, yeah, please get in touch. Right, we are coming to the end of today's episode. We've had some great fun today, but before we go, I just want to ask you one little question. And this question is what I'm going to attach to the Spotify podcast. And I'll also include this question on the socials as well. So it gets you guys talking to me and I can add your feedback onto the next podcast. And the question today is this. If you went back to the 1940s and stayed there, what would be the one thing that you would miss from 2023? So yeah, get your answers into me and I will give some feedback to that on the next episode of A Trip Down Ducket's Passage. So it might be wise for me to tell you how you can get in contact with this show. 
you can find us on social media. So you can find us on Instagram if you search for at DuckitsPod. You can also find us on Twitter or X, which is also at DuckitsPod. If you want to find us on Facebook, you can by searching for A Trip Down Duckets Passage, or you can just search for Duckets Passage, or you can email us at ducketspod at gmail.com. You can now find this podcast on the likes of Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn and Google Podcasts, and there are also a few other streaming sites that you can find us. If you would like to watch Goodnight Sweetheart, then you can by tuning in to That's TV channel, which shows episodes every now and again on there. Or if you want to watch them in order with us, you can actually go on to ITVX, which is ITV streaming service. And I think they've got every episode on there for you to watch. Like I mentioned to you earlier, I love doing this podcast, so please don't think that I'm giving up if I've not brought an episode out for a a few weeks. Like I said, I'm trying to get them out probably every two or three weeks or so because I've got two jobs on the go at home and I'm still trying to do this in my spare time. What with it being Christmas as well, it's just a hectic time. I am hoping that after this episode that I would be able to try and get episode 5 and episode 6 done before Christmas. That's my hope. So I will get ploughing on with those. But thank you so much for all the great feedback that you've given me so far. It really does feel great hearing that, especially for something that turned out just to be a little hobby for me. It's nice to get that kind of feedback. What I ask from you guys is please get in contact with me. I'd love to hear anything that you would like to say about Goodnight Sweetheart. Any trivia that you've got would be lovely to hear. And please also, if you are part of a Goodnight Sweetheart group on Facebook, Facebook, Instagram or whatever, if you can just share this podcast with them so we can get more followers, more listeners and make that Goodnight Sweetheart community bigger and better. It's going great so far. Like I say, it's been an absolute joy to do. I've not really got much more to say other than I hope you have a lovely week. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and all that I can say now is goodnight, sweetheart.